Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, we have Vince Gennaro, the Associate Dean of the NYU Tisch Institute for Global Sport. We're gonna talk about the future of fandom, specifically how sports teams can adapt to changes in fan behavior and the advances in technology. We're going to discuss what it will look like to watch a game in 2030, and I can't think of anyone better than Vince to give his perspective as his innovative analysis of the business and economics of sports has been the subject of articles and commentary in places like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes, CNN Money. He appears regularly on MLB Network studio shows, including MLB Now, and he is the host of a weekly radio show, Behind the Numbers, Baseball Saber Style, on Sirius XM Radio, and the author of Diamond Dollars, The Economics of Winning in Baseball. All this follows a successful 20-plus year career at PepsiCo, where he was the president of Pepsi's food service beverage, the general manager of a billion-dollar bottling unit, and the leader who we can thank for launching Cool Ranch Doritos. At the age of 27, Vince raised capital to purchase a franchise in the Women's Pro Basketball League. That was the forerunner to today's WNBA. He served as the owner, president, and general manager of the St. Louis franchise, and that was just seven years after the passage of Title IX. So I'm so excited to get after it. Vince, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Fred. I'm looking forward to it. So I've got to start at the beginning with you raising capital to purchase a franchise in the Women's Pro Basketball League. You're 27 years old at the time, and not a lot of people would think, you know what, let me go raise money to buy a women's basketball team. Can you walk us through that experience and and give some color to to that time in your life? Sure. You know, I I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I uh, grew up in uh, northern New Jersey in my dad's Italian deli. So we were small business people. And I remember when I got out of business school, University of Chicago, where I got my MBA and went to work for a a relatively small company. I want to say a $30 million company at the time called Data Resources, Inc., DRI. Otto Eckstein, the former economist from Harvard, founded that company. And it was all about economic consulting. And anyway, my dad said to me, wow, you went to work for a big company. And I'm thinking this is like a little service organization, a little mom and pop shop. So that, that sort of stuck with me and reminded me of my roots. And so I was with DRI for for a couple of years. And, and I, I had a bug, I think, to do something different. And I was pursuing two paths. One was my analysis of baseball. And again, this is the very early days in, in the mid-70s, late 70s, when, base, when Bill James was just creating sabermetrics. In fact, Bill and I actually spoke on the phone back in the uh, late 70s a couple of mm-hmm. times. The other pursuit was I stumbled across this interesting concept of women's professional basketball. And I'll give you the short version of the story. So coming home from a business trip and lived in downtown Chicago, and instead of taking, it was a Friday afternoon, instead of getting in a taxi, which would have been a probably an hour and 45 minute ride and $70 and so forth, I, I decided to jump on the airport bus, which took me directly to a hotel, which was attached to our apartment building. 
fixed cost, you know, it was um, probably going to be a little quicker. Well, 10 tall women got on the bus, one sat next to me. And I said, what group are you with? She said, well, here, we're with the Houston Angels and we're here to play the Chicago Hustle. And I said, what are the Houston Angels and Chicago Hustle? Well, we're Women's Pro Basketball League. We just started a couple of months ago in November. This is February of uh, 79. And uh, would you like a couple of tickets for you and your wife to come to our game tomorrow at the Paul Alumni Hall? I said, sure. Well, my wife and I showed up at the game and to see 5,200 complete sellout at, at Alumni Hall in the north side of Chicago and to see these young women swarming the players after the game was over. The whole notion of a role model, which you and I, of course, had in a team sport, yeah. could be born for women. And it changed my whole mindset. And I said, let me look into this. Well, I looked into it, met with the commissioner, put together a proposal and bought a, bought a franchise and, and moved to St. Louis. All by the way, I, I almost think it's infeasible to, to do this now. I did it in about 90 days because I bought the franchise in May. Mm. And this was in February when I first learned of the league. So it was crazy. Those are amazing. So what was the team name? The St. Louis Streak. I love it. That is yeah. so cool. I feel like the whole podcast should just be about that. I want, I want to go deeper, <laughs> but we, we have a lot of things to talk about, so I'll, I'll keep going. So then you, you have a very prestigious career at Pepsi, unleashing Cool Ranch Doritos on us all. You mentioned your love of baseball it was already kind of percolating. Can you talk about when that, that comes back around in your career? Well, yeah. I, I, I grew up a, a big baseball fan, and and uh, that was my sport. I, I played it. I played it at a at a semi-professional uh, level uh, with leagues in, in North Jersey. Uh, had a chance to play against the uh, late uh, Jim Bouton mm. in one of his uh, uh, forays into the non-affiliated baseball league after in the late 70s, or actually early 70s. Anyway, it wasn't really until I left PepsiCo in the early 2000s that I, in earnest, picked up right where I left off remarkably some 30, nearly 30 years earlier, 25 years earlier in the late 70s, and sort of got back after my baseball analysis. And of course, the difference then was in, in 2003 and four was the computing power was there, the volume of data and information was there, and this uh, emerging discipline of baseball analytics, sort of the extension of sabermetrics was really uh, coming to life at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere now, right? Because I was reading today about Aaron Boone, the Yankee manager, and it was talking about the friction between his, you know, old school style of managing players and making gut instinct choices versus the data inputs. And it just struck me that a lot of corporate America is going through the same challenges where all of a sudden they, you know, whether it's through sensors or IoT or just, you know, CRM or all the different data points coming back to the C-suite is making in a very different type of organization and way of approaching decision-making. Absolutely, Fred. And, uh, you know, I think there is this ongoing tension. In baseball, we, we would always say it was between the, the stats and the scouts. Yeah. But in corporate America, it still exists in, in any way in, in, a different, in a different format. And, you know, I, I think that, of course, uh, the rational side of me says that the, uh, the beauty is in and the power is in blending the two together. Yeah. You know, I've never done a piece of analysis that I thought was the complete answer sheet to a complex problem. 
it's really one more input into that problem. The same could be said for baseball analytics, but I also think it's the same way in, in what we do in business today. I mean, there's, you know, I, I've learned to value experience and I think it means a lot, yeah. but at the same time, if it's based on hunches or, or instincts that, that have never really been proven out, they might be myths. And so it really is important to integrate data into the discussion, into the equation. So interesting. So that's a great segue into NYU Tisch Institute for Global Sport. Uh, can you maybe level set the group here on you know, who is it for, what does it do? And, and I know just as I, I got to know you and, and started doing research, I mean, if I could have studied esports and the impact of blockchain on sports, I might not have ever left school. I think it's just such a fascinating curriculum uh, that I see you all have created, but uh, I don't want to steal your thunder. So you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. We have three degree programs at the Tisch Institute for Global Sport, and we're housed in NYU School of Professional Studies. The three degree programs are a bachelor in sport management, a master's in sports business, and an MS, a master's degree in global sport. The latter is a low residency, predominantly online program that really leverages the incredible NYU global footprint and has uh, four one-week residencies uh, at different places around the globe, including one of them in New York, but mm -hmm. the other three will, are international. It's a very structured program, and it's made for people who perhaps are working, maybe they're working remotely outside of the U.S. and in Seoul, South Korea, or in, uh, or in Nairobi, Kenya, and they still want to get a degree from, the, from uh, NYU and, and understand the sport business on a global scale. But even in our bachelor's and other master's, more traditional master's program, our curriculum is both very global in nature, but also, to your point a few moments ago, very much on the leading edge, uh, teaching and talking about things that very few sports management or sports business programs are like blockchain for sports or the business of esports or the impact of extreme sports as, as a sociology course. And I could go on and on. Hmm. So kind of following that, that line, what role do you see technology playing uh, in the ability for leagues and teams to connect with their fans in, in new ways? Well, I think we're at a really critical inflection point. And, and I think the enabler, starting at the top down here, I, I think the impact will be enormous. And what I would say is that the, um, one of the enablers really is the expansion of 5G, which will give us bandwidth to do so many of the things that the rest of technologies, other technologies, will enable us to do. So, you know, think of virtual reality. Think of, think of buying a seat behind the Lakers bench, but you live in Berlin or you live in Sydney, Australia, and you get to watch that Lakers game with a, maybe today with a headset on, an Oculus headset, so that, you know, you might be somewhat cordoned off from your friends who are watching it. But at some point, you know, in a even a more friendly way, able to watch that, a more social way, able to watch that and feel like you're at the game. So uh, that's just one example of a technology. I, I think the ability to engage fans with technology is uh, just beginning to happen. And it's going to be incredible. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, we had Ronan, uh, the, the CEO of Verizon uh, on, and he was talking about 5G and, and how that is going to enable all these technologies. Uh, and, and on the flip side, I was uh, also thinking about we had 
several futurists on that were talking about sort of VR uh, and this, this sort of potential for the future. How do you all at Tish prepare folks for this? You know, because you have to get them ready for what is today, but also for this, I'll call it uncertain tomorrow. How do you kind of approach that? Well, there's on, t- on two levels. One is the is the sort of literal substantive level, which says that we are we are teaching them what's emerging as it's emerging, and sometimes as it's being talked about before it emerges. So everything from new modes of distribution, new modalities that we can communicate with fans, and then and then also the um, the technologies themselves. We have we have a course on new media, which gets into uh, VR, AR, and other things like that. But beyond the literal and the substantive, what we also teach is we try to teach agility, learning agility. And so it's important that we don't just teach stuff. We teach them how to learn and how to continuously seek the next level of knowledge. You know, one of the things that technology has done is it's reduced the half-life of, of some of the tangible skills we teach, right? Yeah. So if you've got a degree and that degree centered on social media and you got that in 2012, it's only nine years ago, but guess what? Uh, Instagram wasn't born yet. Twitter was three years old. So I'm not saying it's totally obsolete, but the point is it has to be constantly refreshed. So it's not just enough to teach things. We have to teach people how to and how to and where to find the next level of of insight. Hey, everyone, just wanted to pop in with a couple other podcasts uh, that might add to this experience. Uh, Take a listen for our open sponsorship interview. This was one of our our first podcasts with the startup founder, actually, and it was looking at the sort of sponsorship market for sports stars into the future. I would also recommend uh, listening to Ronan Dunn, the CEO of Verizon. Uh, he goes into some of the 5G technologists and technologies that uh, Vince is alluding to. And lastly, take a listen to Kathy Hackle. Uh, she talks about the metaverse uh, and we go into uh, virtual Air Jordans and a number of other sports elements. I, I love the the phrase learning agility. Uh, one of the things when, when we're hiring here is like, we always are trying to find the right word for it, but it's constant curiosity. And yeah. learning agility is a great way to, to describe that, right? And, and you're dead on with the half-life of our skills and constantly needing to be upskilled. So let me ask you this. You have such an interesting vantage point on it. How do you see the future of fandom evolving and changing? You can choose whatever timeline you like, but where's fandom going? You know, it, I think it can go in several different directions. Uh, one of which is, you know, I've, I've thought for some time now that we could evolve to a place where arenas and stadiums became more like theaters. I could see, to use my, my favorite sport, baseball, I could see in the future a 12,000 seat major league stadium that is appointed to the hilt, okay, in terms of technology, in terms of luxury. And, you know, you have to be careful you don't make it inaccessible to certain income strata and so forth. Well, let's say you accommodate that. And that's there in part because it's an interesting experience to to be at a ballpark. Obviously, I I feel that way and many do. Also, um, for the ambiance, for the viewer, right? 
But now we're taking these sports and we're going to be able to beam them all around the globe. And, you know, perhaps baseball isn't as popular and you've got time zone differences and so forth. But the point is, isn't as popular internationally, I meant to say. So, but the point is, I think we're seeing a different sort of level of, of transmission and production of sport where much of the engagement happens on the fans' terms, not on the team's terms or the sports terms. So that's why I think we're going to have to have all these different modalities. We're going to have to have highlight packages for fans. And I think we're going to get to this individual curation where, look, if I'm a, um, if I'm a Yankee fan, and I'm not, by the way, but if I were, I would perhaps want to see Yankee games in full. And then I'd want to see my division rival games highlighted in a package every night. And then I want to see greatest hits from the rest of baseball. That's just one dimension, right? Some fans might think that way. So I think all of that's going to come to be at some point with curated packages that are very personalized. I love it. I, I had a very interesting conversation with the startup yesterday that uh, was securing the rights to games uh, from D- Dominican Republic baseball mm. to stream live in the U.S. And at the same time, they were talking about uh, streaming soccer from Honduras and getting the rights in the U.S. And it, you know, one of the questions that was asked was the, you know, is that too small a niche? And the response was so great. It was like, no, that is for people that love Honduras soccer. It is the thing they are most passionate about. And then they could be exposed to the other content that this the startup had involved. So I think it's so interesting because there's no, there's nothing like sport, maybe music that, that people are so passionate about where they will follow their team, but everyone has a different point of view, which it makes it hard, right? The personalization of this and scale, the balance of personalization and scale. That's right. You know, and we teach a course here, the science of fandom. And the science of fandom really peels back that onion and gets down to the core of why we care so much about our sports teams and our sports brands. And, you know, one of the things you realize when you go through the material is you realize how much fans are attracted not only to what goes on in the field of play, but they're also attracted to the community that is part of the experience, right? And so there are many fans out there who aren't as riveted to what happens on the court or on the field. It's really more about who my, uh, uh, you know, who I'm in community with. That's what's really important. So there's all these different dimensions that make sport, you know, a much more sophisticated business than it was 20 years ago when we didn't have the information that we have today. Absolutely. So let me ask you, we, we touched on baseball a little. That sport in particular, and maybe it's because that's what I was brought up on and, you know, Mickey Mantle stories. I am a Yankee fan uh, and I pass it down, right? I just, my son turned two, I got him a Derek Jeter jersey, but there's a lot of conversation around, you know, baseball needs to evolve the game itself faster, you know, more entertaining for younger fans. What are your high level thoughts on that? Because you, it's such an intense balance between the history and the, the specialness and tradition of a sport, as well as the need to move forward. Yeah. Well, I have strong feelings on this and, and I do feel that we need to aggressively evolve. And, you know, we have this a bit of an illusion about the uh, romanticism of, of keeping the sport the same. And the reason I say that is the sport has evolved with no intervention radically in the last decade right. in terms of the strikeout rates and the, uh, you know, and, and other aspects of the game. And that's in part because baseball seems to be very reluctant 
to tweak the rules. So I think they've got it a bit backwards. They've looked at the rules as sacred, but the product has changed radically. Whereas football, on the other hand, the NFL tweaks their rules every year. And what they want to do is consciously create a product on the field that, that is in step with fans. And I think they've done a great job of that. And I think baseball is trying to do that, but they've got the formula backwards in that they keep the rules the same. And by the way, regarding the uh, sacrosanct statistics of the game, yeah. in a lot of ways, I think that got, all got blown up with Barry Bonds and that whole era. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, what does it mean, you know, 60 home runs for, for uh, you know, and 61 for Maris for a century were, uh, you know, were, were all about what baseball is. That's all out the window between Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and, you know, whatever we're going to see in the next generation. I don't think we have to worry as much as we think we do about, you know, preserving those, those golden number records. Right. That's so interesting. Uh, so let me ask you this. I mean, you're, you're on the, the bleeding edge, as you mentioned. What is your point of view on startups and sort of emerging technologies as an important channel for, you know, executives at the established leagues and teams? as a way to sort of embrace what's next? Oh, I think it's critical. You know, we have an entrepreneurship track here in the Tisch Institute, and we really encourage and foster and mentor those who, who are looking to bring in the next level of innovation and new business ideas into the sport ecosystem. Many sports teams and leagues have uh, dove in headfirst. You see what the Dodgers have done in terms of what they've done on the venture capital side for for sports information and data and other sports-related startups. So I think it's a very important element of the ecosystem, and it's something that we want to play our role in supporting. So I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Let's look out. It's 2030, let's say. What is the one thing you think we will be most surprised about in terms of the fan experience? And that can be a technology or a trend you're excited about or just something you think is that the average fan might not know is coming. I think... You know, I, I, I've thought a little bit about this, but I, I think there's a number of ways to go. The one that I might single out, though, is the, uh, the pervasiveness and the power of blockchain as a technology to verify and create an immutable record of transactions of any kind, which will be the platform that underlies all ticketing, including the secondary market, the trust and verification issues will be presumably behind us at that point. It's a wonderful technology because it stands to democratize everything, really. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a, have a profound impact on the globe, but I do think it'll also have a big impact in sports in ways we probably don't even yet imagine. Love it. So, Vince, how can people learn more about you and the amazing programs at Tisch? Well, at the Tisch Institute, at NYU School of Professional Studies, our website, nyusps.tischinstitute, uh, uh, there's an edu in there somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where it fits. And then in terms of me, just vincegenero.com, the very simple URL for my website, and talks a little bit about a lot of the things that I'm involved in these days, including, of course, what we're doing here at Tisch Institute. Well, Vince, this has been a, a pleasure. Thank you for, for your time and sharing all your, your insights and wisdom with us. Oh, it's been fun, Fred. And, and thanks for the great work you do over at Venture Fuel, too. And uh, I really enjoyed the time today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this interview, you are going to love our Future of Fandom event. 
October 14th, 12 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it'll be a, about a one hour virtual event. We have one of Vince's colleagues joining us from NYU. Further from that, we will have loads of folks from the different sports leagues and teams coming in to talk about what the future looks like. So go to AdventureFuel on LinkedIn. You'll get more information on it. Uh, and again, the event is October 14th between 12 and 1 Eastern time. Look forward to seeing you there. And thanks again for listening.